You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. CISA adds to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, attacks against industrial systems, DNV is recovering from ransomware, Chinese cyber espionage is reported against Iran, the persistence of nuisance-level hacktivism, Robert M. Lee from Dragos outlines pipeline security, our guest is Yasmin Abdi from Snap on bringing her team up to speed with zero trust, and a side effect of Russia's war, a drop in pay card fraud. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. Good day to you all. It is great to have you here with us again today. We begin with some notes from CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Yesterday, CISA made an addition to its known exploited vulnerability catalog, tracked as CVE 2022-44877. The issue involves an OS command injection vulnerability in the CWP control web panel. That system was formerly known as the CentOS web panel. Exploitation of the vulnerability could allow remote attackers to execute commands by using shell meta characters in the login parameter, and apparently some remote attackers are doing just that. Federal civilian executive agencies have until February 7th to apply updates per vendor instructions. Also yesterday, CISA released four industrial control system advisories. It's worth paying due attention to warnings like those contained in the CISA advisories, An industry study suggests the range of threats industrial systems face. Nozomi Networks has released its OT-IoT security report for the second half of 2022, highlighting disruptive attacks against the transportation and manufacturing industries. The researchers describe a cyber attack that hit rail technology manufacturer Continental in November. The attackers stole more than 40 terabytes of data, which they threatened to publish on the dark web unless the company paid a $50 million ransom. Continental refused to pay the ransom, stating that 
it would only help fund continued attacks on the security of critical infrastructure, such as utilities and hospitals, educational institutions, and the economy. Nozomi notes that attacks against rail systems have been growing in frequency, making this sector an attractive target to all threat actor types at play. Nozomi also outlines wiper attacks against three Iranian steel companies. These attacks were claimed by the hacktivist group Predatory Sparrow, though the BBC cites experts who suspect the attacks may have been carried out by state-sponsored actors. The maritime shipping sector has also been affected by recent cyber attacks. According to the Lodestar, the Ship Classification Society DNV has disclosed that its ship manager fleet management software was hit by a ransomware attack on January 7th. DNV says approximately 1,000 vessels belonging to 70 of its customers have been affected, stating, DNV experts have shut down ship managers' IT servers in response to the incident. All users can still use the onboard offline functionalities of the ship manager software. There are no indications that any other software or data by DNV is affected. The server outage does not impact any other DNV services. DNV experts are working closely with global IT security partners to investigate the incident and to ensure operations are online as soon as possible. DNV is in dialogue with the Norwegian police about the incident. DNV is communicating daily with all 70 affected customers to update them on findings of the ongoing forensic investigations. In total, around 1,000 vessels are affected. We apologize for the disruption and inconvenience this incident may have caused. Tradewinds reports that as of January 17th, DNV was still working to bring Ship Manager back online. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 has published a report describing Playful Taurus, also known as APT-15 or Vixen Panda, a Chinese threat actor known for carrying out cyber espionage campaigns against government and diplomatic entities around the world. In this case, Playful Taurus is targeting government entities in Iran with a new version of its Turian malware. The threat actor appears to have compromised the network's of at least four Iranian government organizations, including Iran's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The new version of the threat actor's malware includes some additional obfuscation and a modified network protocol. The researchers conclude that Playful Taurus continues to evolve their tactics and their tooling. Recent upgrades to the Turian backdoor and new C2 infrastructure suggest that these actors continue to see success during their cyber espionage campaigns. Our analysis of the samples and connections to the malicious infrastructure suggest that Iranian government networks have likely been compromised. At the same time, we would also caution that Playful Taurus routinely deploys the same tactics and techniques against other government and diplomatic entities across North and South America, Africa, and the Middle East. So, take the campaign against Iranian networks as a cautionary tale. Russian threat actors allegedly disrupted a Ukrainian news conference yesterday, Axios reports. Media Center Ukraine, the service convening the event, said, We just faced a cyber attack on our information platform committed by Russia. We understand they don't like to hear the truth about this war, but we're not to be stopped. We are online. We are broadcasting. 
The news conference was set to include an interview with Yuri Shaikal, head of state service for special communications and information protection, who was to offer an overview of Russian cyber operations during its war against Ukraine. The delay was brief. The interview has since been posted by Ukraine Forum. Its contents are about what you'd expect. Continued attempts, for the most part, ineffectual in terms of combat support. Nuisance-level stuff, like the attack on the press conference itself. And finally, to stay with the hybrid war for a moment longer, Russia's campaign against Ukraine has had at least one somewhat surprising effect, a recession in the criminal carding economy. In the course of surveying pay card fraud during 2022, Recorded Futures' Insect Group noticed a 62% drop in stolen cards being hawked or dumped on the dark web. That drop, InfoSecurity Magazine points out, coincides with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The drop came in two waves. The first was occasioned by an unexpected crackdown on some cybercriminal gangs in January of 2022. Recorded Future says... The governing theory is that Russia sought to signal its intent to cooperate with the West against cybercrime should the West acquiesce to Russian demands regarding Ukraine. Any expectation of Western goodwill was soon seen to be a false light. The second wave took place after the invasion proper, and once it became clear that the war Russia had unleashed was going to be far more protracted than anyone expected. The report says... After April, slack carding demand and depressed volumes of fresh records were likely a result of Russia's war. It is highly likely that the war has significantly impacted Russian and Ukrainian threat actors' ability to engage in card fraud as a result of mobilization, refugee, and voluntary migration, energy instability, inconsistent internet connectivity, and deteriorated server infrastructure. Russian-occupied areas of the Donbass region of Ukraine were long suspected to have hosted cybercriminal server infrastructure. And this is in addition to another possible contributing cause we might mention, the mobilization of gangs as cyber auxiliaries of the Russian intelligence and security services. This sector of the criminal underground economy is likely to continue to see a downturn as long as the war continues. And those 350,000 conscripts President Putin just said he was going to summon have to come from somewhere. You're not necessarily going to be left alone in the local cyber cafe or your parents' basement. Coming up after the break, Robert M. Lee from Dragos outlines pipeline security. Our guest is Yasmin Abdi from Snap on bringing her team up to speed with zero trust. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. 
Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Yasmin Abdi is a security engineering manager at Snap, makers of the popular app Snapchat, and also the CEO and founder of NoHack. I checked in with her to learn how she and her team at Snap are implementing principles of zero trust to better secure their organization and their users. So at Snap, I manage our access control and access employee management team, really trying to make sure that we only give employees permission to users' data and to other sensitive data that they need for their workflow. So I built out a team of engineers and product managers and program managers to really build this uh, one-stop shop of really controlling how access is set up at Snap. So my day-to-day is really checking in with our engineers, making sure that the project is going forward, making sure that all of our stakeholders are uh, kept up with our latest changes, if any, and really just making sure that their project is managed and working in the right direction. Well, what are some of the challenges you and your team face? You know, running at an organization with that kind of scale, what sort of things are you up against there? Yeah, so some of the challenges that we face is for our stakeholders, some people have differences of opinions on how certain things may go in terms of the project. So it's really just all in terms of negotiating, making sure that everyone's viewpoints are heard, making sure that the stakeholders are having their needs met, and really making sure that we're all on the same page and we can deliver the best solution and best services to our stakeholders. And how are you coming at this from a technical point of view? What are are the sort of design philosophies you all have adopted? Yeah, so we're really big on reusing existing services and existing frameworks, guidelines, and solutions that we have in-house, really not trying to reinvent the wheel here and use some existing products that we have just to uh, speed up the time of development and implementation. So I would say that that's probably the uh, biggest technical uh, solution that we are trying to use here. Yeah, so I think in terms of... um, the technical challenges that we face. Um, there's a lot of new technology that's coming out every day and just really trying to figure out how we're going to incorporate new technology with the existing technology that we use. And then in terms of some of the solutions that we have in-house, 
with all of these differences in technologies, uh, really trying a way for them to all work together seamlessly. And are you all are implementing zero trust? Yeah, so really limiting the amount of data and the amount of permissions that's given to our employees. So really trying to prevent overexposure of data um, and really making sure that the appropriate data is given for the workflow. So because we do host millions of different pieces of user data and sensitive data, really trying to promote zero trust at the forefront and limiting uh, access to services or to data sets that are not needed for certain workflows. And how does that present itself you know, from a practical point of view to to your users, to your stakeholders, uh, to be able to implement zero trust, but not at the same time have too much friction so that they can't do their jobs? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges with implementation of zero trust is just that it does cause maybe an additional layer of requesting access and uh, maybe another step in the access management lifecycle. When we do only expose a certain level of data and a very, very, very small fraction of data to certain employees, if there's a use case or a, an edge case of an employee needing a certain data set, you have to go through a whole Jira ticket process. And then it's a, just another layer, another layer of, uh, of uh, communication with either different teams and stuff. So um, even though it is going to be an additional layer of uh, request to get that access. At the end of the day, when you think about the bigger picture or the goal here, it's it's to keep our users safe, secure, and their data private. So um, it's worth it. And 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 uh, we try to really understand each workflow and each data set that's needed for workflows. So that additional layer of requests or that additional layer of, of access that would be, need to be approved by higher up and, and level managers um, sometimes becomes a challenge. But for the overall uh, goal that we have of really limiting amounts of data for only the workflow that you need is that's that's the goal that we're trying to achieve. And how do you measure success? How do you know that the things you're putting in place are being effective? Yeah, um, I think our biggest measure of success is uh, limiting data breaches, and uh, uh, those are probably the the biggest ones here that we have, but. Um, I think we have audits and we we run these audits pretty frequently and um, checking and fact-checking, hey, does this group of employees or this group of contractors, if we just type in their work their uh, work title, um, what access uh, do they have? So running periodic uh, audits is a good measure of success in terms of seeing what really do these employees have access to um, and just verifying that. And uh, I think another thing is when we do have maybe an employee's laptop compromise or um, a scenario where it is an incident, um, are we quickly able to revoke access? So I think the two things here is, can we quickly answer the question of what access do they have? And then can we quickly revoke it? And if that turnaround time is is small and is like a couple seconds to do, then I think that's a great measure of success for my team. What about the the cultural element and, and communicating with your team members, your colleagues there, uh, you know, explaining what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, why it matters that they're on board with these policies? Yeah, um, I think that communication in my team is is uh, one of the things that I appreciate and I, I look forward to the most. We all have a open door policy and there is no um, hierarchical positioning. So if someone has a, a 
a suggestion or some feedback on how we are communicating or a pain point or they have some uh, decision, technical decision, technical solution that they want to bring up, we really do listen and we really take communication very strongly here. So I think that it's um, it's super important to have that open door mentality and really understanding, even if you're a junior and you just started and it's your second week, your, your opinion and your value does matter and you have the ability and the autonomy to bring your solutions to the table and we will discuss them and see how we can incorporate, implement them into the overall bigger picture that we have here at, at, at SNAP and on my team specifically. That's Yasmin Abdi from SNAP and NoHack. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, you and I have talked about a lot of the, the different uh, elements of uh, of your area of expertise. Uh, but one thing we haven't touched on are pipelines. And uh, I wanted to touch base on that today is just kind of get an overview from you of, first of all, how they work, how they're monitored, and what are the concerns in that particular area? Sure. And so... I mean, pipelines themselves are, are vital to any sort of country that's operating on, on well, I mean, in general, the, they're not just natural gas and, and fuel. There's a lot of sort of uh, product that moves through pipelines these days. So in general, most countries have a necessity to have pipelines. And obviously, that can be a contentious topic. Uh, you have to have the right of way. You have to be able to um, have the land rights to be able to build a pipeline. It's going to probably upset somebody pending where you go, the route you take, et cetera. But there's a lot more pipelines than people realize, and there's a lot more monitoring and care and thought on those pipelines than people tend to, to appreciate. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything from, especially in the United States, like Environmental Protection Agency or EPA kind of monitoring. Uh, there's a lot of data points across the pipeline in terms of uh, how they're running it, how clean it is, making sure you're not putting off you know, harmful emissions or uh, product into the environment. That type of monitoring and reporting the EPA is going to take data points uh, and pass it back usually to uh, a historian or some type of SCADA-like uh, application. Uh, disrupting that alone could make it completely unaffordable to run the pipeline. As an example, if you took down the ability to report to the EPA for most uh, companies not being able to report to the EPA uh, lands you pretty large fines. And those fines add up really quick to the point where it would be non-economical to run the pipeline anymore. So there, there's all sorts of little pressure points, if you will. But I think the big takeaway uh, is, number one, the infrastructure itself, the the focus on safety, the focus on how to thread the needle of doing it environmentally appropriate while understanding that inherently there's going to be challenges. There's just a lot of thought process with that. On the cybersecurity side, they're facing, most companies are facing the exact same challenges everyone else is, which is most companies around the world have invested very heavily in their IT security. Uh, and, and that's been a topic for years for CEOs and board of directors and governments on let's do cybersecurity critical infrastructure, not realizing that Almost all of their investments are on the IT security side, not the OT security side. Obviously, when you talk about those operations technology or industrial control systems, that's the critical part of critical infrastructure. 
and it's largely been ignored with with good uh, good reason for a long time it wasn't connected up and and the risk profile was different uh, but now all that's changed and people are trying to play catch up so i think it's very fair to say that most pipelines are not where we'd want them in terms of security but we have to balance that with because things have changed, not as if they've just been bad operators or so forth over the years. Um, so lots of different components that go into it. But if you think about it, they are complex networks of uh, applications and purpose-built systems, uh, custom network protocols, different types of, of pipelines are going to have different types of considerations like gas compressor stations along the routes. Uh, there's just a lot of unique equipment uh, and expertise in running one of those. Can you help me understand in terms of monitoring these systems? Because obviously they, you know, they they exist over a large geographic area. Are, are we talking about, you know, sensors that are using cellular networks to report back their their data and, and all of the the pluses and minuses that go with that? And how has um, how has that evolved over time as the technology has come along? Yeah, used to you would have pretty analog type systems, not really connected up. Then we started seeing more uh, cellular type modems, VSAT type communications, wireless, etc. Maybe like an RF off of a local tower. Um, We have started to see more IP-based networks and kind of fiber uh, being run as it's been more affordable uh, in those kind of situations. Um, But by and large, Anytime you talk about industrial control systems over a wide area, you're you're in the lane of SCADA, right? So I think there's still a lot of folks out there that understandably, when they hear of industrial control systems, they associate that term with SCADA or supervisory control and data acquisition. But Mm -hmm. SCADA really only deals with kind of those large, wide area networks. Uh, If you're talking about more localized, like a plant, you're usually talking distributed control systems or DCS. Um, Some type of manufacturing may not even have that. You'll just have program logic controllers or type of local control elements. But when you have a gas compressor station that has its control elements, when you have a pipeline control center that has its control elements, when you have pipelines across hundreds if not thousands of miles and all the control elements across it, that's when you introduce SCADA as kind of this above the local control, supervisory control that is there to make sure that the system of systems is operating as intended uh, and that they've maintained positive control in such a way to, of course, ensure safety and environmental um, sort of protection. When you look at the, the current state of security with pipelines, uh, where we stand today versus where ideally where we would like to be, how do you assess that? Yeah, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to put down any of the individual companies. We work with some of them who are not uh, sort of in this profile, but the majority of industrial infrastructure in the world, I wouldn't say the majority of the critical infrastructure, but the majority of the industrial infrastructure in the world is simply not doing a lot of security. Uh, again, things have changed. It's not that they're bad bad companies or whatever. But those changes now require people to do OT security. And you can't just take your IT security practices and copy and paste them into OT for a lot of reasons. Some folks will go, oh, yeah, because of legacy systems. No, that's really not it. It can be a barrier. But the reality is in IT security, you deal a lot with data security and system security. In ICS security, you deal a lot with systems of system security and physics. And so if the attackers are operating differently, if the systems tend to be different, if the communications tend to be different, if the ways to achieve your goals tend to be different, if the impact is different, then you're probably not going to take the same security and copy and paste it over. So people are trying to figure out what that means. I would argue that 
probably the biggest challenge for most companies is getting their network into a good place. So you usually see kind of some some level of segmentation with like a firewall project or an SDN type project and then building out a more reliable network. And then kind of the very next thing that people will do is kind of turn the lights on in the house. Like, what do we actually have? Is the architecture what we actually think it is? That's the whole visibility and monitoring thing that people talk a lot about in the industrial space. And, and that then helps people understand kind of where to go, what to focus on, what the actual issues are. Most pipeline companies, like many other companies out there, uh, are not doing anything beyond the preventative work of let's segment, let's put firewalls, maybe we'll do antivirus. It's understandable because if you look at the standards and frameworks and regulations out there, they do push very heavily on the, that prevention focus. But what happens is without the visibility, without the detection and response, you end up having that prevention atrophy over the years and you don't actually have the environment you think you have. Part of the problem for a lot of infrastructure owners is they spend quite a bit of time building out a reliable and resilient environment but without that monitoring, without that understanding of it, it, it does atrophy over time and you have less and less and less value out of that prevention until there's a tipping point, whether it be a state actor, ransomware, or just random crap that can happen and take down a network. So I would say that pipelines are you know, behind where we want them, behind some of the larger industries, but it's not a simple answer of why. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Ivan. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. 
In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 